Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. I'm Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I'm going to interview a lawyer, all right? It's going to be very exciting. We're going to talk about GDPR, privacy, legal matters, just in general for affiliate marketers, and it is my pleasure to interview Zach Strebeck. And I'm, I think I got the name right. I had to ask Zach a couple times to make sure I got it right. So um, cool thing, Zach is a student of Five Figure Niche Site, and that is how I met him. He has a very interesting story. I know a few of my friends that are lawyers, they kind of set out to be lawyers at the very beginning. But Zach took sort of a it was the long path. It was a long path to get to his law degree and practicing law and all that business. And um, it's pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool overall. He talks about dealing blackjack and some other things along the way. So very interesting overall. So I'll send it to the interview in just a second here. But after the interview, I will talk about some of the legal stuff that I have been through at least, you know, running, I haven't been sued or anything, thank goodness. But, you know, I haven't had to sue anyone else. Also, thank goodness. But I will mention a few things that, you know, I dealt with either with setting up a business, the accounting area, which by the way, all this stuff I am generally uninformed. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I can tell you about my own personal experience. And if you need specific advice, I highly recommend you get your own lawyer (laughs) to get information or get an accountant for those, uh, you know, accounting and tax questions you may have. Sometimes you need to talk to both of those people and maybe double check to make sure they're telling you the right stuff. I've gotten, I'll get to those stories later. So anyway, uh, Zach has some pretty awesome information for us. And um, if you do have questions, I'll probably bring Zach on to field some of those questions. Again, I don't know what I'm talking about, but Zach does. So if you do have questions, you could shoot me an email at feedback at Doug.show. And uh, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hey, what's going on? It's Doug Cunnington here, and I'm with Zach Strebeck. Did I get the last name right? That's correct. Awesome. Awesome. So, Zach is my lawyer friend, and um, for people that don't know you, Zach, can you give a little intro? Sure. Uh, My name is Zach Strebeck. I am a lawyer. Um, Most of my practice involves video games and board games and uh, websites and and mobile apps and things like that, sort of the new media type things. But mostly I'm known as a a video game and a board game lawyer. But I'm also (laughs) also a niche site owner, uh, having done Doug's course. So that's how I kind of got involved with all this. Very cool. And how did you um, find your way into the like game area of lawyering? Because that sounds more interesting than some of the other lawyer stuff that you could be doing, right? Most lawyer is pretty boring. Although (laughs) being a game lawyer is also boring. It's just uh, doing something (laughs) a little more interesting. Uh, I used to be a game developer. So I used to do animation and uh, uh, game design for, for children's computer games a long time ago. And so as I transitioned out of that career and into a new one, uh, I decided to choose video games and, and board games as my my practice focus, my client focus. Gotcha. So you you were like 
a game designer and then went to law school after that? Correct. Yeah. Cool. How, so how long? I, I wasn't a very good game or I wasn't a very good artist. <laughs> so I'm a better lawyer than I am a, an artist. I kind of think I found my calling while still staying in the same in the same industry. Gotcha. So can you this is sort of off from the topic um, from that okay. we're going to cover, but I was hoping that we would find a thread like this. So how did you like end up deciding? Cause law school is, uh, I assume not cheap. It takes a lot of time. It's yeah. not easy. Yes. Right. So how, like, how did you figure like, Hey, I'm going to quit my job, take a detour and just like change things up. Well, I got laid off from the game company I was working at <laughs> at one point. So I'm sure you, you, you kind of have a shared experience there. Um, and I transitioned into a second career, which is working in casinos. So I was a blackjack dealer for about six years. And while I did that, I hated it. <laughs> uh, you know, you talk about repetitive work. We're sort of just doing the same thing over and over again all day. Uh, hated that. So while I was there, I started to get a I got another bachelor's degree in history and decided to go to law school after that. Um, during law school, I didn't didn't work. But. After school ended and I graduated past the bar, I started my my own solo practice like the next day and went digital nomad for three or four years after that, sort of traveling the world and running it virtually. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. So you did the the blackjack dealing for six years, yeah. you said. So where were you located for that? Near Palm Springs, California. So outside of Los Angeles. Um, I started off in Coachella. People know Coachella now. Uh, because of the Coachella Music Festival, which when I was there, it didn't exist yet, I don't think. But uh, I was at a, a, a Trump <laughs> Trump casino out there. And then I moved uh, inward a little bit toward Palm Springs and, and started working uh, working there. Okay, interesting. Super interesting. And then from the – so you got a, a second bachelor's degree in history. And did you know that you were going to go to law school? I know history is sort of like a one of the – um, I don't know. Yeah. Very common for lawyers is the right. Um, degree, right. right? That's why I did it. That's why I picked history. Uh, I was also interested in it personally. However, I mean, knowing what I know now, <laughs> I probably would have done some sort of science. Uh, you can you can't be a patent attorney, so I can't write patents uh, or deal with patents unless I have some sort of science or technical background, which I probably could have done, uh, but I didn't. So, gotcha. Kind of screwed up there. Interesting. Yeah, I knew um, actually a couple. Um, actually, I guess I'm not good friends with him now, but a couple good friends and one guy I went to high school with. He got a double E degree, ended up working at the patent office, and I think he eventually got his law degree. And it's like, man, that's a that's a pretty good combination of like technical skills and like cool stuff. Yeah. Then there's a lot of uh, <laughs> earning potential there. It's yeah, and then well. there yeah. was this other dude um, who he got an ME degree and then he got his master's and then his law degree and ended up like as a like IP and patent and like was doing yep. stuff with Google and like it was kind of yep. great. Like once you see the path, it's like, oh, wow, that's amazing. So exactly. Anyway, so the reason why we're talking is to sort of get into the legal areas that people that have uh, affiliate sites or niche sites or making money online with websites should be concerned about. So I have sort of a like list of a couple of topics that are pretty common questions that I have. And generally, mm -hmm. I think most people are 
similar to me in that we don't know much about laws or what we're actually supposed to do. So we kind of try and do our best, but probably make a ton of mistakes. So let's start with a couple of the very basic things, which is around or which are around. I'm not sure. I can't remember what I said there, but basically disclaimers and like the FTC. So for me, Mm -hmm. as I'm doing more affiliate marketing, mentioning more products, I am basically probably overdoing it and just saying like affiliate, like I'm, I'm affiliated with them. I get a commission. Like if you buy blah, blah, blah. Like I'm mentioning at the beginning, at the end, making it super clear in plain language. So just from a high level, what do people need to know about the FTC disclaimers and mentioning affiliation, that sort of thing? Right. Well, I mean, you're definitely in. So I'll preface this by saying the FTC actually has some great documents online on their website. So if you look up endorsement guidelines, uh, they, they have some documents that you can read that are pretty pain, plainly stated and give some examples. But there have definitely been some lawsuits. If you're a niche site owner, affiliate site owner, most likely the FTC is not going to come after you because you're just too small. So most of the brands that people the FTC have come after have been like fashion brands that have done Instagram contests where they have people doing hashtags, um, but they're not disclosing that they're sponsored, things like that. However, it doesn't hurt to be um, <laughs> to be compliant with the law. So it's good to familiarize yourself with it. I mean, generally, you want you want to assume that people aren't going to read past uh, where they're going to be clicking the affiliate link. And I know that you've talked about this before and you, you put your affiliate disclosure up near the top, which is good because they're guaranteed to see that. Right. But if you put it in your sidebar, if you put it down in your footer, if they're looking on mobile, you know, they're going to, they're going to be seeing 20 affiliate links by the time they get to, you know, your sidebar starts at the bottom and then your footers below that. So they're not going to get to your disclosure. Um, so arguably you're not doing it correctly because you're not really giving them notice that these are sponsored links, right? And you can use a hashtag, you can use a, a you know, hashtag affiliate, hashtag sponsored, something like that, or uh, just a little notice that like you use that says, you know, these, these are affiliate links, I make a little bit of money. You know, if you put it in plain language and, you know, you say it in a way that makes them want to support you, you know, help to support the site, I get a little bit uh, from from when you click these uh, links and buy something, right? And even, you know, some people with this, this doesn't cost you any more, but it helps us to, to keep the site running, that kind of thing. But as long as it's in plain language and it's <clears throat> sort of commensurate with where the affiliate link is, I think that's that's the best way you're going to do it. That's the way the FTC is going to tell you to do it as well. Cool. So, and I want to go back to a part um, that you mentioned where if you put your disclaimer or actually anything in your sidebar, probably anyone on mobile is not going to see it. And the reason why, and you, you alluded to it, but just want to like underscore it. So for a mobile responsive site, typically the sidebar is going to be placed under the content nowadays. Um, So yeah, like you said, they maybe wouldn't see it. They wouldn't scroll all the way down. And depending on I mean, some of my pages are so long, I wouldn't expect them to scroll down 25% of it, you know, let alone get to the very bottom. And I guess the spirit of the law is to let the person know if they click the link that you're going to get a commission and you're affiliated, um, that like 
So if it's in the bottom, yeah. then the spirit of the law isn't like, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but like the spirit of the law isn't they, like respected. The law wants, wants the user to know that you have a vested interest in them clicking that link, right? So it's not like a hundred percent free choice that you've, you've decided on these products or that, you know, you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart. They want to know that there's, <laughs> there's a financial incentive there. And then the user can, can make that decision however they want, but they also want, like you're getting at, um, they want a viewer that's seeing that link to also be aware of the fact that it is a, an affiliate link or sponsored link at yes, the same time. Indeed. So um, anything else around the disclaimer or anything like that before we shift gears a little bit here? Uh, the FTC, I, I gave some examples, but the, the endorsement guidelines actually do give some examples of what they would be. And if you're doing social media posts, it's the same thing. So if you're putting, you know, you, you do your, your deal of the day or your product of the day or something on your, on your Facebook page or whatever that's connected with your affiliate site, you know, you're supposed to do an affiliate hashtag or a sponsored hashtag or something like that. And you can, you know, there are specifics like it can't be hashtag AFF or hashtag, you know, like really shortened versions of it. It's really supposed to be the whole word. And honestly, those are all in the, uh, in the guidelines. They, cool. They've kind of covered that. Excellent. Yes. <clears throat> and I've actually read those. So we'll put links and stuff so people can go check those yeah. out. And in, like you said, Zach, it's like pretty readable, like for normal people to understand yeah. and with examples. It's like kind of hard to goof up. Yep. <laughs> unless you're not following it. So, exactly. and, um, as we're going through this, I realize that, um, legal stuff is boring. So we're going to mix it up and we're going to do some, uh, like I agree. we're going to do some content. We're going to do some other, uh, like off topic stuff. So you went digital nomad for a few years. Can you talk about that some? Cause this is a dream of many, many people. And it sounds like you had yeah. a kind of a, an unusual path through your career and in general. So how was the digital nomad stuff? How did you figure out to do that? I got into it based on uh, like many nomads, the, the four hour work week. When I read that, I think a, a mentor of mine had recommended the, maybe it was the tropical MBA podcast and they kind of turned me on to four hour work week. So I read that and all of that was, and the mentor had been a solo attorney as well. And all of that sort of, came together and made me think, Hey, I can start my own business. I can run it from everywhere. You know, I just, I don't go to court as a lawyer. I draft contracts and do a lot of transactional work and deal with intellectual property. So I don't need to be anywhere. So as long as I'm awake <laughs> in the right time zone, um, you know, I can, I can do the work from anywhere. So and it's actually kind of funny because for the first year or so, there really wasn't enough money coming in from clients because all my, all my clients are, are, uh, coming from content marketing. So just like, just like you guys, uh, you guys, us <laughs> with the uh, affiliate sites, you know, I write blog posts and the blog posts bring people in. I write guest posts and the guest people, best posts bring people in I mean, all of that stuff. I kind of did it intuitively. Uh, I'm getting better at it as, as I learn, actually learn from you and from, from other, uh, affiliate site SEO type, uh, uh, people. But in the beginning, it was just creating content and getting it out there. Um, and to make money, I did writing for other blogs, <laughs> sort of content creation. I worked for a text broker, so I was basically uh, 
doing whatever their slave wages are <laughs> for, for their four star writers. It's it's not much. So, you know, we, we kind of had a sidebar before we started recording this about, you know, how much you can actually make <laughs> or how much you need to pay writers so that they can actually live. And, you know, if you live in Bangkok, like I was, or around Southeast Asia, and I lived in Mexico for a little while, and, you know, I travel around, uh, the cost of living is pretty cheap, but, you know, you, you need to work. I needed to work about three or four hours a day writing text broker blogs, and then I could afford to live and spend the rest of my time uh, trying to grow my business. Gotcha. And how long ago was that? Uh, 2014. So the beginning of 2014, uh, is when I started my business. So for the first year I was probably, uh, yeah, that was, that was fully nomadic and spending a few hours each day. I, I was, I was fortunate enough because I, I had legal training. I could get on a legal team on text broker and they had a steady supply of work coming in all the time. So it was always something, but it was, you know, $7 a post or something like that, you know, or you just have to crank them out. And, and like 90% of it is, and this is, this is writing for legal blogs. And this is one of the crazy things like legal blogs have the worst content. It was basically like you'd take a car accident story and you'd rewrite it and then put a little blurb about, you know, what you do, call a lawyer if you have a car accident or whatever. I mean, you want to talk about like uh, the do's and don'ts of creating good content. This is like, this exposed me to the worst kind of content, which is just like trash to, to fill up a blog. Right. But there was, I mean, just hundreds of these posts available to write. So, you know, you just write them. I'd write about someone, some celebrity's divorce 10 times and just sort of write the same post in slightly different ways so many times. It's ridiculous. That's terrible, man. So, like, um, that was uh, for about a year, you said, as things were ramping up for your business. And then over time, you started, like, bringing in, like, legal clients to, and you had a steady stream. So, you didn't have to do the um, text broker gig. I remember the day, the feeling <laughs> when I thought, I don't need to write these stupid things anymore. I'm, I'm done. And, you know, I just uh, had enough money coming in from my my business that uh, that it was it was fine. And I know a lot of uh, affiliate site owners probably have the same thing. You know, you have that number you need to hit. And when you do, it's like, all right, I don't need to do this full time job anymore. I don't need to do whatever else I'm doing to make money. I can I can just let the, the website work right on. So. Before you left on your your uh, you know your travels and stuff, did yeah. you save up like a nest egg or something like that, or you were like, I'm just going to pull the plug and I'll do the text broker thing? Yeah, I sold my car on Craigslist. I put it up there, and an hour later, some guy showed up with four thousand dollars in cash and bought it, and some shady business with the, you know, signing it to his uncle or something like that. But I didn't really care. <laughs> it was like it was, it was done and I was out. And so, uh, yeah, that $4,000 got me the first, you know, few months, uh, in, in Thailand and the plane ticket. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the money was coming in slowly, but surely. So that kind of kept me going. I mean, it was, it's tight living. <laughs> I, I know that, but if you save up more, you know, you save up $10,000 or something like that, you can live around in Southeast Asia for, for about a year, probably. Um, as long as you don't get kicked out for visa reasons. Gotcha. Wow. This, that's crazy. Yeah. Like we, um, we sort of traveled around in the U S a little bit, but like mm-hmm. we did the, like the opposite we went to like expensive cities and rented like expensive <laughs> houses and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, you know, teach their own. Uh, it's we, different lifestyle. Yeah. yeah <laughs> now yeah. I'm more, I'm, I'm more able to do that because I actually have a, a decent business, but yeah, before yeah, that, yeah. So. Well, and we, <laughs> I was living on the cheap. 
Right. And we, like I was going to say, we had a dog that we wanted to bring with us. So that's this part of the, the reason. So anyway, back to the topic and back to the boring stuff. So let's talk about GDPR. And um, I remember it was, I guess, like a year and some change ago. I kept seeing all this information coming out. AWeber was sending me stuff. Other companies were sending me information. I was getting all these notices. And then I was like, what is this fucking stuff going on? So can you explain what is GDPR? What does it even stand for? Why do we care? It's the General Data Protection Regulation, I believe. Uh, it, it applies to EU residents, uh, which can be people who live in the EU now or also EU residents that are living abroad. Uh, so it's pretty wide ranging. And that's why people were freaking out about it, because even if someone's in the U.S., uh, if you're taking their email address without their consent or something like that, you're technically in violation. So, you know, everyone updated their privacy policies because you need to alert people. Uh, they have a certain amount of rights uh, that are free. So a right to see what information you have on them, a right to delete that information, a right to not be uh, uh, just various things. Um and so, yeah, people were going nuts. The big thing is, you know, with a with an affiliate site, I mean, there's a few things that you specifically need to think about. Uh, the big one in the background is data security and making sure that that any personal information that you're getting from people is sort of secured. And a lot of these third party services that we use are probably going to have better data security than if you had, a, you know, a server in your in, in your house or something like that. Right. I mean, they, they have they use Amazon Web Services. That's like, you know, in a special place with security guards and all that. So uh, everything's encrypted. I, all that's great. You know, you use uh, uh, SSL uh, encryption on your site, that, that kind of stuff. So that's good. Uh, the other thing is getting consent when you take personal information. So this is why AWeber and MailChimp were sending out these emails that, you know, give you GDPR tools and things like that. Because if you're, you know, someone's email address and their first name and last name, phone number, whatever you take from them, that's all personal information that you need to make sure that you have either consent to get it or there's actually six, they call them lawful basis for taking and processing that information. Uh, with a mailing list like that, consent is going to be the number one. So basically, it's like, you know, they have to know when they're putting their email address what they're signing up for. So if you kind of lie to them and say, you know, uh, we're going to send you this, but actually you're putting them on a mailing list or, or sending that information to someone else or things like that, you, you can't do that. So you can only really take use it for the purpose that you you've clued them into. But if you've got people, in, you know, when you're playing about, you know, sign up for the newsletter and I'll send you this free lead magnet. Uh, and you really didn't have any problems before GDPR. And so they were kind of freaking out about nothing. You were already compliant because you were already getting consent. And that consent is recorded with MailChimp or AWeber or ConvertKit or whatever you're using. So it wasn't a big deal. The big deals are things like if you use Google Analytics, let's say, you know, you need to disclose that you're using that and that's taking certain personal information like their IP address and, and things like that, you know, their location. That kind of stuff. So, you know, usually a privacy policy should have all of this stuff. So you basically do a do an inventory. What information am I taking from them? How am I using it and who am I sharing it with? And you need to disclose all that stuff in your privacy policy. And I, I suspect that most and probably even on my affiliate sites, uh, that is not properly doing all of that. So it may be worth taking a look at that. Now, you know, again, most of our sites are so small. 
even when they're big sites, they're still so small that no one's ever going to notice and no one's ever going to care. But again, it's good to be compliant regardless and, uh, and just keep yourself safe. Got it. Got it. So the, the main idea is to make sure you have consent whenever someone's Mm -hmm. like providing some information and to give them the ability to like see what it is and delete it if they want to. Yeah. They need to be able to opt out to, which is good again, you know, because the can spam act already required that, uh, in, in your emails, there needs to be something at the bottom of the email that they can unsubscribe. So if you're already using one of these services, they're already going to be forcing you to comply with that. So it should be fine. Cool. And the one thing that I changed, like for an inch site project, not for any of my affiliate sites, is that you actually mentioned it. So like we'll send you the lead magnet, but I also needed to add, this is one thing that I went through all my opt-ins and I was like, I'll send you Mm -hmm. a few emails a week because sometimes I do send more than one. And then I send... um, promotional emails as well to let them know yeah. you're going to be sold to at some point. Um, Cause I think that, you know, I wanted to make that clear. I'm going to sell to you yeah. at some point and you're going to get information, but I'm going to sell you something. Yeah. And some, uh, I know MailChimp does it cause I use MailChimp for my business. Uh, they'll allow you to do kind of a GDPR compliant setup where uh, they can select different types of emails and they're put into different segments. So they can select, I just want the newsletter. I want the promotional emails. I want this and that. And you can categorize them in different ways so that you can make sure that you're not sending them things they didn't agree to, which is good. I mean, if you want to be like a hundred percent on the, on the level with GDPR, having, having that kind of granularity can't hurt. But again, I don't know. It depends on, and this is sort of the more advanced uh, affiliate site stuff because a lot of the the newer sites aren't doing mailing lists and aren't even bothering with this stuff. So right. yeah, okay. So um, I guess a little bit deeper on this, it, like for the average person, like mm-hmm. you, let's say they have a pretty big website. Let's say they're getting you know a hundred to two hundred thousand visitors per month or something like that. Like, yep. could they like actually be sued? um th- through like violations with gdpr potentially so what happens is uh a user will complain to one of the data protection authorities in europe and each country in the eu has their own so let's say they send a complaint to the german authority the german authority will then you know uh, review it and see if there's something there and they could either assess a fine which so the big freak out when GDPR was coming out was that the fine could be up to four percent of your uh, your global revenue or something like that. Like it was you know for bigger companies it was like some insane number. Now they haven't been that high. Uh, even the day one complaints against Google and Facebook and all them were I think Google was something like fifty million euro, which. If your Google isn't really that much, and it was because they were not disclosing things about personalized ads. Uh, and so the personalized ads is the, the bigger thing. I think taking email addresses for a, an authority site probably is, is lower on their uh, list. But you, I think there's places where you can actually look at what the judgments under GDPR have been. And, and you can see if there's similar sites to you on there. Okay. But it would, it would require that someone complains. Your users would complain first and then uh, the, the authorities will look into it and you don't, you don't get sued under GDPR. You, you just sort of, it's like a government, um, complaint process, administrative process, okay. but they can impose fines on you. So, I mean, there is danger of a fine, I suppose. Okay. 
And then final question for GDPR here. They, um, you know, I land on these websites and then I see the little pop-up and it's like, um, we're using cookies and blah, blah, blah. You have to consent and all that. And it's like the worst user experience. It's like the dumbest thing <laughs> yeah. ever. And I don't do it. And I'm like, yeah. I hopefully no one complains with me um, on my soapbox. But I'm just like, you know what? Like, don't come to my website. It's a very like um, uh, self-centered <laughs> way to approach it, <laughs> I suppose. Right. But I'm just like, hey, yeah. Like you're using the internet. You're getting free stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm well, taking analytics. You can thank the EU for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I understand. Um there are certain cookies you don't need to disclose, and then there are others that you do. So there's a list. It's actually, this wasn't from GDPR. This is from, there's an EU cookie law, cookie directive that came before this, actually. And so that's where you're getting the, the, the cookie stuff from and why you need to agree to it. And a lot of it is like if they're tracking you from one site to another and things like that, um, which may be the case. I'm not sure how uh, Amazon affiliate works. That may be a, a cookie that is the kind that you need to disclose. And again, you know, even on my own sites, uh, I will freely admit that I'm not, I'm not kind of in, in full compliance with this. You know, I worry about uh, my business, but not necessarily, my affiliate sites aren't big enough <laughs> that, they, you know, they're even a, uh, right. uh, anything worth worrying about. But it's one of those things, as you get bigger, that's the kind of thing you should start to, to think about. You know, are you doing your proper? And I understand, I agree. It's a terrible user experience. These things pop up on every site, and I swear, even if I clicked it one day, I feel like it's coming back another day. And there are there are some standard JavaScript things that you can add to your to your sites. Um, I think there's like Open Cookie something uh, where you can have them do that and just get that OK on there. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, you're right. It's a terrible user experience. Right. But it's yeah. the law. Unfortunately, it's the law. They don't seem to care. Yeah, it's funny, like, because uh, I was revamping my site, like, trying to work on speed and stuff, and I was like, okay, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like just hose everything down now and make it so no one can read anything. I'm, I, I know there's other ways to handle it, but that's my interpretation. Yeah. I was like, this is dumb. I'm not gonna do it, which yeah. is not what you're supposed to do with laws and everything. But well, that's just where I ended up on it. So, <laughs> um. Okay, shifting to the more interesting topic, and then we're going to do this back and forth thing. Yeah, so sure. um, how did you get into like the affiliate sites? Like you mentioned, you you were a student in Five Figure Niche site. So how did you like find your way into it? Do you remember? It's a good question. So I, okay, uh, before I even started the Digital Nomad thing, one of the things I started doing was making, uh, I had found uh Wow, they were empire flippers then. Wait, are they still? They were AdSense flippers back then, right? They're empire flippers now. Is that is yep. that or EF? They have a different name even. Yeah, yeah. Or empire, they, maybe just empire. They've like continued yeah. to generalize. Yeah. yeah. Well, now they're a now they're a, a, a website flipping place, right? Uh, it used to be that they were like I don't know, they were telling you how to do AdSense websites and things like that. So I did a bunch of terrible websites that were just like, you know, I was like putting them up and putting up like 200 word blog posts, you know, trying to get and I had no idea what I was doing. And then I was trying to do like uh, drop shipping stores and all this nonsense. And I didn't understand any of it. And eventually, I joined this group, uh, the Tropical MBA has a the dynamite circle. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like their little sort of mastermind or, you know, group for, for sort of serious business people. I joined that and I met Dom Wells through there. 
uh, and I saw that he was doing these done for you websites. So I ended up buying two of those, which, you know, <laughs> I probably was a mistake. It was just more than I could handle. Right. Probably one would have been a better, a better deal. Cause actually one of those is still sort of sitting there and I haven't gotten back to it cause I ended up starting another website with the, with your course as well. Cause I think through Dom, he had done some training that mentioned KGR stuff. And then I ended up looking that up and I saw your video and, and ended up, uh, buying your course and, and getting into it from there. So that's my affiliate site journey, I suppose. But yeah, it started off. I mean, they were a complete disaster and I still have, it's funny. I'm, I'm reminded all the time cause they're all still in my Google analytics, all the sites that don't even exist anymore, but I can see all the names of it. And it's like my, my blood pressure monitor or something dumb like that, where it's like some very hyper specific thing that, you know, is just a terrible and they're all dot info or dot, you know, some yeah. crazy just terrible but i'm sure you you know that as well I, I didn't have a story like you where they made a lot of money in the beginning <laughs> i made zero money off of that in fact i got my adsense account banned like day one <laughs> when i tried putting ads on these things and then uh yeah i, I still haven't reinstated it <laughs> that's sure. funny I yeah did. well it's like for people that don't know or maybe they got into this um like in the last couple of years or something like that mm -hmm. i mean i got started around the same time as you 2013 2014 yeah. and adsense flippers yeah i remember downloading their free ebook um it was like 70 yep. pages on how to start i bought long tail pro <laughs> all the stuff all. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and like so many of the big like you know empire flippers big marketplace they're pushing i don't know how many millions of dollars through and they're you know they have a big reach and um it's just amazing because they literally started with these generally regarded as crappy sites, um, small yeah. AdSense sites. And they, what they did was, uh, they figured out how to just systemize it, systematize it and like build a bunch of them and realized, well, we could sell them. So they were, you know, empire flippers, right? So they were flipping these yep. AdSense sites, um, as they were building them. And actually like, Dom started doing that at human proof designs and it like mm -hmm. with Amazon affiliate sites, which they're still yep. doing. Um, and they're, they've gotten better over time. So it's kind of crazy. Like people started at a certain point and just like their trajectory is pretty amazing if they stuck with it. Yeah. So yeah, what they, what they sold me was the dream of having an empire of sites <laughs> that I could sell and flip and, and make money from, which, uh, still hasn't quite happened yet, especially with the AdSense stuff, but Indeed. I'm still yeah. working on it. So in, in quick, uh, quick correction. So I had probably eight sites that were not very uh, good, but I just okay. did them really quickly. And then within a year, like I had one or two like successes and I've quickly got penalized after that. So, I mean, it was kind of a roll, roller coaster ride across the board. Um, so anyway, it's perfectly normal everyone to have just a mess yeah. of uh, a wake of failed yeah. sites behind you. So, that's that's how any business works really you you have to you have to fail and learn to walk before you can run right i mean you're not gonna hit it big right out of the gate indeed usually. indeed yeah. okay now moving back to the boring legal stuff so no offense zach yeah. but privacy policies are, oh, so what should be in a privacy policy do you have like a sample like what high point should we hit here because i don't i don't really know yeah it's the same it's same as when i was talking about gdpr i mean that's basically what's sort of dictating privacy policies now there is a, a california law that's going into place in 2020 so at the beginning of 2020 however again for most smaller sites it's not going to apply it's it's a question of if you meet certain thresholds 
like it's like $50 million in sales or something like that, or, or a certain amount of users, 50,000 users or something like that, which could, could hit some site in California. And so if you're not hitting these numbers, then you don't need to worry about it. And then if you're not doing certain things, it doesn't matter. So generally, if you're meeting the GDPR rules, you're going to be hitting the California rules as well. Uh, if your site's big enough that you're actually worrying about this, then that's you're going to know and you're going to you should look into it. Um, I have a post on my site. We could probably uh, yep. link to that somewhere. Um, but yeah. So what do what do you need? What personal information you're collecting? Uh, whether it's directly from the user, like when they sign up for a mailing list or through something like Google Analytics or if they sign in, sign in through a Facebook login or something like that, uh, you need to disclose. I'm taking this information, which means I can take your age, your, you know, your name, blah, 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 your friends, your profile picture, that kind of personal information. And then what do you do with it? Why do you use each of that? If each of those things, what do you use it for? You know, I use your email address and your first name and last name to deal with technical support issues, customer support issues to deal with, you know, to send you newsletters and run contests or whatever you do. Um, <clears throat> and then who else do you share it with? So if you're, you get the email address, but then you share it with MailChimp or with Aweber. You need to disclose that, who you're using, and then basically link to their privacy policy because they're, you know, then their privacy policy is going to control. So this document is mostly a, a disclosure document. You want to disclose how you're doing all this stuff. It doesn't, there's not necessarily a limit to what you can do. GDPR put, does put some limits on it, you know, especially it needs to be uh, under a lawful basis. So, I'll go through that. As I mentioned the lawful basis thing uh, earlier, but consent is one of them. Uh, if you have a contractual rela relationship, so let's say they buy something through your site, you're selling your own info product and you need to get their payment information and all of that. Well, the basis for taking that information is a contract, right? I need you are buying this thing and I am delivering it to you. Um, it could be a, uh, uh, if, if you're required by the law to give this up. So let's say, you know, you need to provide this to the authorities, all the, I don't know, logins from your website or something like that. And you're required by law to do that. Um, there is something called legitimate interest, which is basically a catch all for other things uh, where it's basically my interest in taking this information outweighs your interest in having privacy. Basically, that's that's and that's sort of the. We couldn't find another place to put it, so we're going to stick it in into legitimate interest. And that's sort of one that hasn't really been hashed out by the legal stuff, <laughs> by the complaints and the, and the regulatory authorities. There's some some guidance on it, but it's not really 100 percent. So a lot of people maybe are overusing that or underusing that. We don't know. But, yeah, okay. you have all that stuff in there. You know, they want you to talk about how you're securing the data. So maybe, you know, we're controlling access. Only one of us has this and we use you know, certain types of passwords and we use SSL and we use this and that, right? Data centers are secured, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff, you know, whatever you can say as far as your security goes. Um, and, you know, what are you doing with cookies? I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff that you could put into privacy policy. Uh, there, are, there are example ones out there. There's um, sites like TermsFeed and IUBenda or something like that. I don't know. But some of them are paid. So you need to pay them a monthly fee to have a privacy policy on your site. And it's like hosted through them. Or you can find them. Or you can pay someone like me, you know, hundreds of dollars to, to draft one for you. you know, okay. Either way. Cool. And... I think I use Terms Feed or a site like that where mm -hmm. I went through like a, a questionnaire 
and then yep. they, you know, they charge you, but it was a one-time fee. Um, okay. And it was like, or at least the, the package that I got, I'm sure they have like a, a full menu of stuff, but it was mm-hmm. like a hundred bucks. And I was like, okay, like I feel pretty just get secure. it done. Yeah. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, it's a one-time thing and I feel confident that, that it's okay. People could go to nichesiteproject.com and find the privacy policy and take a look there for like what I did. And now, copy it from you. <laughs> yeah. You can copy it. Um, now I guess can people just generally find a, like an existing one and kind of read through it and customize it in yeah. a general way, or is that kind of bad practice? Well, as a lawyer, I would say you should never do that because your specific situation is going to be different than someone else's. So you may be doing something in particular on your site that's different than others. Maybe you're not using the same data security. Maybe you're taking other information. You know, for for example, on my mailing list, I don't take your name. I just take your email address, right? But others may be taking their name and their, you know, maybe maybe some other information about them. So, you know, you're not disclosing one thing and you should be. So. If you if you're copying someone else's, it's the same with their terms of use. If if you have one of those, um, you know, I never recommend copying someone else's, only because your specific situation might be different. That being said, I mean it's probably ninety five percent the same. <laughs> so you know, do sure. it, do what you got to do. I'm not your lawyer. You know, I suggest everyone get their own legal counsel when dealing with these things and trying to be GDPR compliant and all that. It's complicated. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than I know it sounds complicated when I'm talking about it, but it's in reality even more complicated, unfortunately. That's right. just the nature of the law. Yeah. So one last question about the privacy policy stuff. Now, sure. I know um, for the disclaimer, you want to make sure that the person sees it before they see an affiliate link. For the privacy mm-hmm. policy, I usually see those links um, probably buried yeah. in the footer, like just available. It's sort of like – yeah. You know, someone can find it if they need to, but you don't have to, you know, put it right in their face. So is that a safe assumption or what's the best practice? The, the common practice is to just stick it in the footer. Um, but but GDPR and general best privacy practices is to let them know when you're at the point where you're taking the information. So when they're doing the newsletter sign up, right, uh, you want them to know what you're taking and why you're taking it. Right. So here's why you're taking this. We're going to send you newsletters, blah, blah, blah. Or if you need, I don't know, they're billing information, you know, they're, they're filling out a credit card form or something like that to buy your info product. Um, on that on that form, you should explain to them why you're taking that information and what you're going to do with it and who you're sharing it with. Right. We use Stripe to, to handle our payment processing and we're sharing this information with them, blah, blah, blah. You know, so at the point of taking of collecting the information that's where you're supposed to be disclosing it in addition to having the full posted privacy policy on your site now what i do i do a lot of work with games and mobile apps and generally what we'll do is have them uh beyond just having that you know the point of disclosure we also have a, a thing that they need to click through to agree to the terms of service and agree to the privacy policy as they're going through. You know, you've probably done that as well and skip through them, <laughs> skip through them. But, you know, yep. again, that's that is what it is. I don't read them either. I write them, but I don't read them, <laughs> unfortunately, because I just funny. assume they're taking everything and I have no power. And, you know, I've you know, in this modern world, I just kind of grown to accept it. But maybe I'm the rare one. Maybe, you know, most people are, really care about the robot. I know you're shaking your head because you're probably the same way. You just assume yeah. the worst. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I well, and I, I was picturing the, you know, the apps and stuff that we install where they have the field, um, like a yep. text box. So yep. you, you can scroll through it cause it's like 40 pages or whatever kind of nonsense. And then you click, yes. yeah, I read that. I didn't read it. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I assume everyone's taking Some, everything. Sometimes I mean, they force you to scroll all the way. Right. <laughs> Those are the, the worst. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to the point where I have, you know, we have like the Google home devices. I literally have like recording devices, like in different rooms so that Google can listen to me constantly. So uh-huh. I'm like, yep, yep, I'm pretty much resigned. <laughs> I got exactly. nothing. There's cameras everywhere. Like I have no exactly. clue what's going yep. on. Um, yeah. Okay. So we're, we're coming towards the end and one yeah. of the, one of your specialties is around trademark and intellectual mm-hmm. property and stuff like that. So what are like the top couple things that an affiliate marketer should think about for those types of ideas? Right. So I could talk about this for hours. Uh, and I actually wrote a blog post that uh, maybe will go up on your site at some point all about trademark law. Uh, but I'll give you two things that I think a new affiliate site and 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 an older one uh, and more, you know, along the growth phase um, it should be thinking about. Number one would be uh, you don't want to be infringing on other people's trademarks. So if you're going to put and this is a, one of my early uh, AdSense sites or whatever affiliate sites was, I think it was like my best Microsoft certification.com or something like that. So in that I'm using Microsoft in the domain name, which is a huge no, no, you don't want to do that. So what you're doing is basically trademark infringement. What I was doing, the site doesn't exist anymore, but I was basically infringing on Microsoft's trademark and they could have gone after me, whether it's uh, a, a UDPR proceeding, uh, which I talk about in the post or, or some other legal means, right? It was basically infringing on their trademark. So what you're doing is confusing consumers as to what the source of the goods and services you're offering is. So, uh, you know, you go to a website and it says Microsoft something something in the URL, you assume it's from Microsoft, right? And so the law doesn't want you tricking people into selling your own products using their brand name, right? If I opened a a store that says Honda cars and I'm selling a bunch of junkers, but I'm calling them Hondas, that's a problem, right? So the law is protecting consumers from getting screwed and getting uh, getting the goods that, they, that they're not expecting. Um, so that's number one. Don't don't use other brands in your name. And if your niche is like you know something that's very specific, you know you don't want to just be too plain about it there and, and put the brand name of the of the product in there. The other thing is when you're coming up with your name, and so I when I like to think long term brandability, you know, so you assume when you're starting the niche site, you know, it's real small and you just got 10 posts on there and and you don't really know if it's going to be successful or not. However, you know, 600 posts down the road and thousands of dollars a month and, you know, you become like a real business and maybe you want to sell that business or, or you're going to get noticed. You want a, you want a name that's brandable and that's distinctive. And so in under trademark law, distinctiveness is the key, right? That's what makes a strong brand. So you want to go toward things that are, uh, they're more either fanciful trademarks or something that's like a, a totally made up word, right? Like Exxon is a made up word. Uh, it's, it, it, and you specifically know when someone says Exxon, it's gas, right? Or uh, something called an arbitrary trademark is like Apple. So Apple is just a regular word. And a lot of people complain and say, hey, how can you trademark a regular word like that? 
but it's because they're selling computers and they're selling phones and the word Apple is totally disconnected from that. And that's what makes it strong is because now the public has to make that connection between the word Apple and these actual products. So you want to veer toward that or even there's something called suggestive trademarks where you're just sort of suggesting the uh, uh, the the thing that, that you're going to be doing. Um, and so you want to stay away from some bad trademarks that are like, um, we, we were discussing this before, you just did the teardown of the uh, best roof boxes, bestroofbox.com, I think it was, uh, that Alex at WP Eagle had done. And in, in the opinion of a trademark lawyer, that's a terrible name because you're basically just describing the products that you're doing. And it's called a descriptive trademark and there's there's basically no protection for that. Because you know, there's no, it's not distinctive. It's just like saying what it is, right? Like if I email is another one, right? It's just like, I couldn't trademark email because it's just, it is email. And you had mentioned like, there's a lot of the, uh, actually a lot of the the sites and brands in the SEO space are very plain. They're just sort of saying what they are. Right. Whereas, <laughs> whereas, you know, something like, and actually authority hacker is a good one because it's like, it sort of says what it is, but it's not really about what it is. Uh, it's about a, it's it's about websites. But I think if if you had a trademark uh, examiner at the USPTO see that, they would think that it's a at least a suggestive trademark and not not so much descriptive or generic. But then you have the, they have a site called Health Ambition. That's another sort of bad trademark where you're just sort of describing what it's about. Whereas if you pick something like I don't know. <laughs> There's a, a paleo guy called uh, Mark Sisson. I don't know if you know this guy, but he is like Mark's Daily Apple is his website name. And that's like a great name. It's like, yeah, it's sort of about food and everything like that. But it's not like Mark's paleo diet site dot com. Right. It's not just saying what it is. It's like, uh, you know, it's it's a little the, you're looking for that jump in imagination that, that you have to make, <laughs> you know, b- before you go between the products and the actual name. So that would be the advice for trademarks. So you want something that's it could be kind of in the in the area, but not quite on the nose. And it's actually good because you always talk about this is not sort of, you know, being very specific about your niche. You know, you want to be a little bit broader so that as you grow, you know, you're not just selling roof boxes. Right. You're you're selling, you know, all kinds of products that are in this sort of genre. So keeping it a little broader actually helps. Uh, when you're coming up with the name, because you can you can kind of be a little more creative. Exactly. And so that don't make sense. <laughs> I kind of went on a, a rant about trademark, but um, no, that's perfect. Yeah, that I was going to say, okay. um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Zach. Yeah, no. Um, so I was going to say that um, we probably can do a round two where we talk more about you know trademark and logos and brand names and you know you said you could talk sure. for hours, so. Yeah. You know, we can definitely, you know, go deeper on that. And people, if you have questions, uh, leave them in the comments, send us emails, uh, send me an email, feedback at doug.show, that kind of stuff. Um, but I was going to say to call back, um, just thinking about like naming and stuff like that. Empire flippers, right? So they were AdSense flippers yeah. at the beginning and they slowly had to, you know, they, they grew up, they had to rebrand yep. and stuff like that. It's a good so, rebrand. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. it was, you know, it was a very smart move and they did it years ago. Again, people probably don't even realize like where they started initially. And, um, I yep. think Spencer Hawes over at niche pursuits. Um, I think he had another website like before he did niche pursuits too. So people could probably like 
dig that up and find it and see what he was talking about before he, <laughs> he leveled up and was like, okay, I want to talk yeah. about like my business pursuits here. So, right. um, right. anything else to add around the trademark or logo idea or anything like that for, for early, you know, early, um, niche site owners. Yeah. On the, on the early side of things, I mean, it's just basically making sure that you have something distinctive, you're not infringing on anyone else. And then I don't know the rest of the kind of, you know, you can register trademarks, but at that early stage, I mean, you're going to pay a thousand dollars to do it. But if your site's not going to make money for a year and a half and you don't know if it's going to be a good business or not, then it may not be worth it. Whereas if you're doing like a tech startup and you know, you're going to be releasing an app or something like that, I mean, you have more money in the beginning, hopefully, and getting a trademark is probably better. So that's why in the blog post, I kind of put the trademark registration in the growth phase. You know, once you've started to actually make money, it may be worth getting that kind of protection. Um, so you can start going after other, other infringement. Uh, if people start, you know, people start noticing you and they start trying to kind of horn in on your domain name or, or on, you know, stealing your site content content and things like that, you know, getting a little heavier legal protection, I think is, is a good thing. Gotcha. And I guess, like for someone starting, let's say, well, I'm just asking for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so like someone who has like an internet marketing blog or a podcast, yeah. for example, my, like the show that I, the show name that I picked Doug dot show, yeah. right. It's Doug dot show. Yeah. Cause I, I was like, let's keep it simple. F- small number of syllables. Um, yeah. is that like a good move or a bad move from a like legal perspective? Uh, yeah. So the the Doug part is fine. They'll probably because it is a show. They probably make you do what's called disclaiming the word show. So your your trademark isn't you can't claim any exclusive rights over the word show because you are a show and it's just describing your your thing. However, the Doug part, uh, you know, that makes it distinctive. You know, um, hopefully, I don't know. I haven't. I would have to do a trademark search and and sort of make sure that there's no conflicting uh, things out there. But uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, I, I think it's fine. What, what specifically was the the question? Just is it distinctive enough, or is it? Is there another question? I, I guess um, I don't have a very clear question. I guess, but I. Okay. You know, I guess one thing. I think there is another podcast that has like it's generally simple. The guy's name is also Doug, um, mm-hmm. but I think he has like a comedy. Um, show and mine's more like marketing and like there's no confusion yeah. like that's the big thing yeah <laughs> depends on who you ask if you okay. ask the trademark office they might say that there is confusion but yeah names are weird because even if it is your name you may not be able to use it for your product it's kind of funny there's a, a famous case about the Ernest and Julio Gallo, I think is their name. The, they make wine. They're pretty famous. Well, they had like a cousin or a brother who wanted to do their own Gallo wine company because it's his name. So you would think he'd be able to do it. But no, they already have exclusive rights for Gallo in the wine industry and you're not able to use your name. So, you know, just because it's your name or just because it's something like that doesn't necessarily mean you have rights to use it, which is crazy. But that's it's trademark law. Yeah, that is crazy. And I think, yeah. I mean, it would require the the other party right the other like this comedian who's like way (laughs) obviously way bigger than me Uh to like have an issue with it and be like hey we're gonna like make sure you don't do that right yeah i mean generally you just sort of peacefully coexist um until one of you wants to make trouble basically yeah okay gotcha just like real regular life you know (laughs) 
<laughs> so, yes, <laughs> exactly. All right, cool. Uh, well, Zach, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. We'll put links for everything. Um, but you have a podcast and you have a website. Like, can you just yep. talk about that just a little bit so people know about that? Yeah, uh, my my law firm website is strebecklaw.com. Actually, with the probably the easier one is gamelawyerblog.com. <laughs> that that's so you don't even need to know how to spell my name. And then uh, the podcast is Legal Moves. Uh, but it's a game business podcast, so I'm not sure if it's interesting to any of your listeners, but if, if you're into the games industry, uh, video games and board games, I, I have just sort of rebooted it and I have four episodes in the can that are going out over the next couple months. So it should be, should be fun. I love podcasting. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks Zach. And we'll have you on for round two. People look out for the blog post. that will be coming out as well. And yeah, I'd love um, to get questions. Please awesome. Thank send you, them Zach. In. All right. Thanks again to Zach. I think uh, that was a pretty interesting story, and it's part of the reason why I love doing these podcasts and interviews. A lot of times it gives me a chance to ask questions that maybe I normally wouldn't ask in like a normal conversation. Sometimes it's people that I've known for quite a while and have had many conversations, but I never like dove into a certain area. And then again, with an interview situation, it's like kind of my job to find something interesting and then keep asking about it. Hopefully, you know, while it's still interesting, not like run it into the ground or anything, but it's pretty cool because like you get to, to find out how people got to where they were at. So Thanks again, Zach, and everyone send in their questions like we were mentioning. And uh, if you want to leave a voicemail, there is a voicemail number. So I won't answer it directly, of course, but you can leave your message and I will play it on the air. So maybe a good idea if you write it out um, ahead of time so you have a, you know, kind of an idea what you're going to say so that you don't, uh, you know, add a bunch of filler words like I just did right there. With that said... I told you that I was going to mention a few of the sort of legal aspects that I have experienced with my like running my own business and starting it, moving from like the corporate world where I had like zero business background. I didn't have an LLC or anything like that, which is kind of funny because I, you know, I hung out with some uh, uh, my friends back in Atlanta. They're they were all smarter than me, I think. Uh, like everyone had uh, masters, mostly MBAs, but there were some other master's degrees out there. Um, I th- actually, there was one other guy who didn't have a master's. Uh, good buddy Corey, he didn't have a master's either. But the rest of the rest of the folks were uh, well educated, very well educated from good schools and all that stuff. The reason why I'm bringing that up. One of my buddies, he just had an LLC. Like he's had an LLC for as long as I've known him. And uh, just for a little ventures or things that he wanted to, to try, pretty sure he like generally didn't make any money from that. Um, but that's because he had a, has a very successful career and he's busy doing, you know, corporate things and, uh, you know, climbing the corporate ladder and a lot of other corporate things, networking, kind of that kind of bullshit, you know, but me, I had nothing like that. And when I first got started, I really didn't pay much attention. And I guess my general thought was it's mostly around uh, like 
bookkeeping. Like that, that, those were my general thoughts around bookkeeping. I just want to make sure I'm paying the taxes properly because that was my main concern. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is I did run across a handful of people in my very first mastermind group. And this was probably within like two to three months of like me discovering making money online, discovering Pat Flynn and Smart Passive Income. That was my gateway in like many other people. That was that was my gateway. So I remember in that first mastermind meeting, some people were talking about, well, I don't want to, you know, start anything yet until I can form a company. And I want I want to, you know, file the LLC. And I have a trademark, I have a, like a logo, and I want to make sure I trademark it so that, you know, no one can copy my logo. And, I, you know, I'm just waiting because I need to know the right domain name to pick because I also want it to be, you know, something that I can trademark so no one can copy my ideas. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, e- even then, even just weeks in, I'm like, no one cares about your idea. Like now it's even more apparent, like ideas are so straightforward. Like most ideas, unless they're really terrible, most ideas are probably going to work out if you work at it and you put enough time. Now, of course, some things are just going to be a little too much, but assuming you have like an idea for a site, it's probably going to work out for you. Like it's, it's probably going to work out. So I could ramble on about that for a very long time, but I'll, let me dial, pull it back in here. So the main point is ideas are pretty easy to come by and you shouldn't worry too much in the very beginning on you know, trying to legally protect your ideas because most of the time, not always, but most of the time, your idea is probably not that unique. If you like, if you think it is like, maybe it is, and and maybe you should talk to some folks about protecting your intellectual property and stuff like that. But generally, like if you're looking at starting an affiliate site, if you're sticking with the general theme of things that we usually talk about here on the Doug show, then um, you're probably not going to need to like figure out how to protect all your ideas. It's more about execution. Now, that said, if you're starting like an app or you have like a startup, that sort of a company, then yes, maybe some things you need to protect um, so that, you know, no one's going to come after you in the near future if you have the potential to like grow really big. But that said, I mean, you, you really probably just need to get out there, start doing something, start taking action, start getting customers, making money, and then you can start worrying about things. I did mention earlier, I was going to talk about some of my own experience. So that said, I started, again, without any business background. I didn't have an LLC. I didn't have a company or anything like that when I first started. In fact, I was so like kind of dedicated and I understood that it was all about execution, not about the idea or the trademark or whatever. Like I don't need to form a company yet. So I didn't, I didn't start a company until I was like three years in basically. Let me think. Yeah. About three years in because I was just like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm paying taxes. And the funny thing is I would get, 
advice, maybe from like YouTube comments, by the way, YouTube comments are a terrible place for advice. So definitely don't take advice from there. Um, but it made me think a couple of times like, oh man, am I, am I really missing out? Because I mentioned, hey, I'm paying taxes uh, like 30, 40%, right? Like I'm paying significant taxes. Taxes are a big deal. And I remember hearing from a couple of people that were like, oh man, you should only be t- paying like 10% taxes. Everything's a write-off. You know, they sound like Kramer from Seinfeld, right? So they sound like Kramer. They're like, yeah, it's a write-off. You should only be paying like a small amount of taxes. Of course, it's a YouTube comment. So the person probably doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. I know they're not an accountant, right? Like why would they be, <laughs> why would they be telling me that? Um, because it doesn't make sense, right? They just heard other people talking about write-offs and not paying as much in taxes and so on and so forth. But it turns out when you start making a lot of money, you have to pay a lot of taxes. And yes, you can save some money in taxes by creating a company, an LLC or a corporation. My initial company was, in fact, a uh, a corporation just because it looked like it fit the bill for what I was trying to do. And there are different types of corporations. Consult your tax expert and a lawyer, probably, whoever you need to talk to. Um, An LLC works just fine. The main thing is you probably, most likely, want to file using a a C-Corp situation. So if, or sorry, not C-Corp, S-Corp. S is in snake, all right? So an S-Corp. I said C, you don't want to do C, you want to do S. So I misspoke there. We're just going to leave it in. We're not going to edit this out. So an S-Corp. And in, in basically, you could have an LLC or a corporation or probably some other entity. States do this in different ways, based on my limited knowledge here. And the main part is you want to use an S-Corp to pay taxes, and then your accountant can help you out with this. But at that point, you are doing payroll, right? You're doing payroll, you're paying payroll taxes, and you're saving on some of that area. So at this point, kind of like talking about legal matters, talking about accounting stuff gets boring and it's on the very edge of what I understand. I have uh, an accountant and they do the like the payroll for me. They do my end of year and quarterly payments for like IRS and for state. So you need to pay both of those on a quarterly basis. Uh, again, consult your tax professional a real expert to get you the right information. So the other sort of legal thing that I ran into was I moved, right? I moved from Montana to Colorado. So it's not super uncommon to have to, you know, operate as a foreign entity. That's what it's called, a foreign entity in another state. In fact, uh, it's super common. So like if you sell things in different states and you're operating in a different state from where you're company is based out of, then you may have to pay taxes there. So not a huge deal. Usually you could get information from the secretary of state of your state, wherever you're operating, and they typically can help you out. Sometimes there's information that's helpful on the website. Other times you have to call in. I tried to do all of that and talk to a lawyer and still managed to make several mistakes along the way. Luckily, 
those mistakes only cost money to fix by filing uh, different forms and stuff like that with the Secretary of State. But you can imagine filling out forms and paying fees multiple times is not fun. Again, I made mistakes and, you know, some mistakes that I made. Uh, I talked to a, a local lawyer around here, not Zach, and the lawyer actually gave me some incorrect information, which was kind of a huge fucking drag, to be honest with you. Again, that's how I ended up filing multiple forms the same forms over again, and then like having to recall them. So not cool, not fun, but once you get it set up, generally things are stable. And the overarching theme, uh, at least with the stuff that I just mentioned, is all about paying taxes. As long as you pay your taxes to the state and to the federal government, generally everyone's happy. And I mentioned paying quarterly taxes. That is what you should do, especially when you hit a certain income level, like they really, really want you to pay quarterly. Um, However, it's usually based on estimates, and sometimes you can make a lot more than you expected, especially in this industry um, of affiliate marketing and making money online. Like you You can far exceed your expectations with your revenue, without knowing it. I mean, you you know when you exceed your expectations, but you may be paying like a certain quarterly amount and then you would want to correct the amount in the future. So for example, if you're paying $15,000 per quarter on your taxes and you need to pay a little bit more because you made more than you expected, then for other quarters, you can actually just pay more, right? Because you know what you just made and you kind of have a better idea um, as time moves on, right? So you could pay more and make up the difference. Conversely, if you were making a little bit less and you've been paying fifteen or 20000 per quarter, then maybe you don't need to pay as much, right? So if you're not hitting your expectations, you're making a little bit less money, maybe you're paying 8000 right? So you, you kind of know how much you should be paying, based on your projections and earnings and stuff like that. And if you are not hitting those numbers, then you can dial down those quarterly payments. So I think I've made plenty of disclaimers here, but again, you just want to you know, consult your tax professional, consult lawyers. They are professionals for a reason. They, they uh, studied all this stuff and they should know way more than me. I hope they know way more than me. Otherwise, you should probably find a different professional. So, all right. Thanks again to uh, Zach. We'll finish it up at this point. And um, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Have a great day. And be sure to subscribe if you're not already.